welcome to episode 22 of the Next Gen Cast. My name's Nish Manek, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and set up Next Gen about four and a half years ago now. And just a quick side note before we start, so we started out in London all those years ago and we are back in London again for our sixth cohort. So if you're a GP trainee or a newly qualified GP and you'd like to apply, please check out all the details on our website. And another quick aside, thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to rate, review, share, subscribe and comment on the podcast. I really appreciate it. So this is episode 22 with Dr Margaret Ikpo. She's a GP partner and current faculty chair for Humber and the Ridings faculty of the RCGP. She's also Associate Director of Primary Care for Hull York Medical School, a Fellow of the Royal College of GPs, and one of the co-champions of Yorkshire and Humber Clinical Research Network. She also sits on RCGP Council, she's a mum of two, and so she's really a very busy lady. I first heard her at this BMA webinar on women in leadership a few months ago, and she spoke for 10 minutes or so amongst a whole other panel of really inspiring GP leaders but I was just so moved by her story that straight after it finished I emailed her and asked if she'd come on the podcast. I was really grateful that she said yes despite all the things that she's juggling. So in this episode we talk about how she coped with just overt racism growing up, how she's managed her imposter syndrome and has now found herself in a whole plethora of leadership roles. And what it's really like now, as a woman of colour, and often being one of few around NHS leadership tables. So here's episode 22, with Dr Margaret Ikpo. Margaret Ikpo, welcome to the Next Gen cast. It's just a privilege to have you here. I heard you on a webinar a few months ago, and I think I probably emailed you that very same night and said, please come on the Next Gen Cast, because I was just so moved by your story of working out, you know, how you belong and your leadership advice and everything that you've done. I was really moved by it. So thank you so much for giving up time in a busy week to chat. Oh, thank you, Nish. Thank you for having me. In fact, I think I remember receiving that email and my first thoughts, despite doing this BMA webinar on leadership, I thought, why is this young trainee who's just been awarded this royal title <laughs> contacting me? Who am I? You know, but I guess that's what we're going to talk about as the talk progresses. But no, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I wondered, Margaret, if we could just start, maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself for people that might not know you. So what roles you're doing at the moment? Okay, so um, I'm Margaret. I'm a GP partner and I work in an area called uh, Kingston upon Hull. I like to bestow its official title on, on the city. I work in quite a large partnership. We've recently merged three years ago um, in an area called Holderness. And I'm a GP trainer as well and a GP appraiser. And I'm the chair for the Humber and Ridings RCGP faculty. My tenure for that is going to come to an end soon in September. So I've loved doing that for the last three years. However, I still have quite strong ties with the college, having recently been nationally elected to council. So they're not going to get rid of me just yet. And then also, I am one of the associate directors in Hull and an area called East Riding for primary care for Hull York Medical School. 
And I, I think that's it. I sometimes have to remind myself of the stuff that I do. And I do, I do dabble in a bit of research delivery as well. So I, I'm a research lead for the Holderness Cluster. So plenty to keep you busy then. Yeah. So we'll, I'd love to explore a bit later how you got into those roles and why you chose them. But I wondered if we could just go right back to the beginning, because I'm always fascinated to hear about people's early influences. I think it very much shapes who we are as people and maybe to how we lead. So I, I remember this from hearing you speak previously. I wondered if you could tell me about growing up and, and maybe just those early years. So, yeah, I think um, the early influences definitely come from my parental influences. I was born to two very dynamic leaders, I'll call them that. They'll cringe if they hear me say that. But um, my father, when he arrived to uh, London from Nigeria, had um, aspirations to be an accountant, but then very quickly worked out that there was a lot of inequalities in the system that he'd come to. And so he joined a group um, for a short while called the Black Panthers Group that was forming in London to try and address those inequalities. My mother arrived um, from Tanzania, but she's originally from Zimbabwe. And she was arriving, in fact, when I say arriving, she was fleeing um, persecution because her family were quite heavily involved in trying to overcome colonial rule in what was formerly known as Rhodesia at the time. And as a result of that, she had been incarcerated herself um, as a very young woman and was supported by the Tanzanian government to come to London to escape that hardship, essentially. And so uh, through my household was always a very fluid household with people who were always engaging in how are we going to address a system that is always against us? So whether you were of colour or uh, a woman, or um, even back then, um, if you had a particular sexual orientation that didn't fit in with the norm, these were things that I was pretty much exposed to from a very, very early age. And then when I was about five years old, my mother, because she, she worked for the BBC, but when Zimbabwe gained its independence, I think it was in 1980, she was offered a role in the Zimbabwean Broadcasting Corporation, almost as um, a recognition for the work that she'd done in. Um, helping to highlight the, the inequities that had occurred in the system in Zimbabwe. And she was very good at what she did as a broadcaster. So we went to Zimbabwe and I remember when we were going to school and it was difficult to get into school because at that time, you the starting age for school was seven and they couldn't understand why five-year-olds would be starting school. And my mum tried to explain to them, well, you know, in the UK, she'd already started the first term. And they said, well, can she even read? And I remember the headmaster giving me a, a newspaper to read. And I read it in the spirit of a broadcaster, like I see my mum read it. So he was like, OK, 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 she, she can come in. And on the first day as we're driving to school, I remember her saying to me, right, this is going to be a very different school to your last one. But what I need you to remember is no matter what anybody tells you, you belong here. You belong in that school and this is a free country, regardless of who you are, what colour you are, what gender you are. And I, I was really confused. I was thinking, goodness, where, where is she taking me? And um, I remember walking into that classroom on the first day and um, I sat down because it was the first day of their term at, at the first available chair. And I remember someone turning around and, you know, she had this long 
blonde hair because I was mesmerized by it thinking wow she looks like a Cinderella because those were my uh, you know people that I saw in, in in storybooks and she said to me you can't sit there that's only where the white people sit and I remember looking at her and then it suddenly dawned on me that the class had been divided up into three rows so on the far left of the class only the white children were sat on the far right all the black children were sat and on the, in the middle was a term that's still used, unfortunately, in sub-Saharan Africa, was where all the coloured children sat. So people who were of mixed race or Asian and sat in the middle. And I remember thinking, oh, and then it occurred to me and I just repeated the words that my mum said in the car. I said, well, I belong here. I belong in this chair. This is a free country. And I looked at the teacher and he said, Mr. Robinson said, Yes, that's very true. Right, shall we start? And that was the end of it. So that was my introduction to to life, really. So that's how I ended up in this landlocked country called Zimbabwe with 10 million people who were trying to work out their differences. And myself trying to navigate that space as as a very young child was interesting to say the least. Sorry, Nish, I've given you a really long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I was mesmerised by your story. It sounds a bit like your Rosa Parks moment. There's a, there's a very clear moment that you seem to come back to. Does that come back to you even now when you're trying to think about pulling up a seat at a table? It does, actually. I always reflect back onto that story because when we came back to the UK when I was around 10 years old, I remember then it was a very different climate. It was almost like taking a step back in time because when I'd left London at the age of five, I remember being very, feeling very included actually in my primary school. In fact, my headmaster used to call me Princess Margaret because to him I was so precious, you know. And and I never, never really, it sounds awful, I never really saw colour. I never really noticed that I was different. But then when I started secondary school, in the same city in South London, there was, it was clear that there was difference. And it was like I'd just stepped back into Zimbabwe five years ago. People gravitated to people who looked like them. So there was the crowd that was, you know, predominantly the young white girls. I went to a convent school and they were the cool crowd. And then there was the, you know, the nerds who, uh, you know, were just actually, they were a bit of a mixed bunch, to be fair. And then we had... Um, you know, what we they call them the sisters. So there were predominantly, you know, black girls that were all together. And it was just, that's, and all of a sudden I felt myself thinking, oh goodness, where do I belong here? Because actually, I think it's really important just to, to know everybody. And so I found the five years in that system quite challenging in very different ways. Yeah, that is interesting because you sort of think those times are in the past, but hearing you talk there, even my own secondary school was a bit like that. And I found it really hard that all the Asian girls would gather together from sixth form onwards. It became extremely cliquey and I never knew where I fit in. And I, I remember feeling quite lost a lot of the time. How do you feel now in the circles that you're moving in? Do you, do you feel conscious of needing to feel like you belong or has things improved? I think things have improved, but I'm I'm less conscious of it now because I went to about, I think, six or seven primary schools in Zimbabwe, so quite a lot. So I think I learned the art of integration subconsciously very early on and how to just get along with everybody, essentially. Um, 
because I felt that I needed that for my own survival to get through a system. And I think that's pretty much how I deal with what I do now. I feel that I don't need to exclude myself from any particular group or, you know, if I'm in a room of people, I'll probably try and find the person in that room that's I feel is least like me. So I will gravitate to somebody who is maybe a lot older and probably white, not on purpose, just because I want to know, you know, what makes them tick or because I feel like I'm, I shouldn't say that, but I'm middle-aged now. It's a admission that I need to uh, come to. I'll try and find the youngest individual in the room, regardless of who they are, just to find out what inspires them and what makes them tick. Because I'm very wary that um, our viewpoints change as we get older and what we feel is important might not be important for the next generation um oh I like that little pun I just dropped in there thank you very much (laughs) so yeah so I I kind of find I don't really have to think about it too much now I really like that because when you're in meetings you're so right I'm just thinking about it now as I always tend to want to hide behind the other people that might look a bit like me but imagine if we all went into rooms and tried to find the person that looked the least like us just motivated by curiosity yeah how different those how different those rooms would be yeah absolutely and there's one of our former chairs from rcgp scotland carrie lunan says Mm. when you're in a meeting one of the things she would encourage people to do is ask yourself who's missing so um and that's one of the things i've tried to take on board when i do chair certain spaces I kind of say, well, who, who else should be here? And sometimes that's quite hard to, to work out when you don't know who should should be there. But you can just ask the question to the group in the space that you're chairing. Actually, is there anyone else that you feel would benefit from this space? And have you ever felt like you don't fit in at the moment, uh, I mean, in, in more recent years? Yes, I, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Yes, I, I have. Um, and it's usually when certain things come up and you're made not made intentionally to feel different and um, I'll give you an example so college has a fellowship scheme which you, you probably be aware of and there's certain criteria that you have to fulfill to become a fellow and in this particular area when I before I was the chair of the faculty I was the educational lead for the faculty and um, I think it's fair to say I don't think I'm breaching confidentiality here but at one meeting Um, There was a talk around fellows because there are some um, perceived advantages and disadvantages to becoming a fellow. And I think it's a very good thing personally to become a fellow because I I feel it's almost it's something to aspire to. And I really do believe in the college ethos and around the table, because at that point in time, a few years ago, we were discussing why it was so difficult to um, recruit or encourage people to become fellows in our area. And I think someone sort of looked at me because I maybe I don't know what I was doing. I perhaps didn't wasn't engaging as well as I should do, put it that way, and asked, um, you know, what I thought about the whole situation. And I, I think I said something like, I'm not really sure what I should think. And the reason why I'm not sure what I should think is because most of the people that we've proposed to be fellows, none of them look like me. And the room fell silent and I almost thought, oh, should I have said that? And I thought, well, yeah, <laughs> I should have done. And it was true. And we have a real phenomenal chair, had a phenomenal chair at that time called Mike Holmes, who was a former vice chair for the college. And he said, right, okay, 
that's really important and that's something that we need to change and it did so it was you know it was I don't think I was made to feel different but then I realized that actually if I'm in a specific space and I can see that actually things don't look right or fair that was a pivotal moment for me that well actually no point thinking it you need to voice it otherwise it's just gonna the status quo is just going to remain and nothing's going to change um so that's when I thought oh someone's uh, acknowledged what I've said but not just given me kind of a a political response they're actually going to do something about it and I'm glad to say in the last few years we've had a much more diverse um, representation of fellows um, from this area. Thank you for being so generous with those stories Margaret but do you mind if I ask what what can we do as a system people who are listening who are probably in leadership roles who could do something but they maybe don't know what? It's a really good question so I think what I didn't realise that was being demonstrated at that time as a concept we've all become increasingly familiar with, which was the power of allyship. I think what was really important for me is that I'd use my voice as a representative, as an educational lead, to explore perhaps what what wasn't happening or some kind of deficits in terms of how we recruited people. And But it was done not in a combative way but it just kind of this is how it's affecting me and people that I know what does this system mean to them so it's looking for those I ident- those individuals who are who, who could be allies for you and it's usually the people who don't represent you know they aren't relatable to you so the, the, the closest allies I have do not look like me but I'm able to tell them um, my story and relay people's lived experiences. Um, and that's, I think, has been quite profound because at the end of the day, we are all human, but we aren't um, all aware of how the other lives and what they've been through. And in the aftermath of um, the 25th of May, 2020, when George Floyd was killed, I think people are actually realising that what they witnessed as extreme as and awful as it was, in fact, it's been happening for years and years and centuries before that, and is still happening. It still hasn't gone away. And people are experiencing all sorts of injustices based on who they are and what they look like every day, but it's not something that we have been encouraged to discuss. And so I'm finding things like um, reverse mentoring, for example, are really good tools and ways that we could use in systems and organisations to get our senior leadership to understand people's lived experiences and think of the ways collaboratively on how we can start to address them. And the more we can have of that, and if it's done in a genuine way, in a real meaningful way, I think we will start to see change happening. And it is. I've got to believe that it is. Can you explain what reverse mentorship is for people that maybe don't know? Yeah, so um, so if I look, we've got a couple of CEOs in our region or, or senior leaders in the trust. So mentoring is usually when you're guiding someone through a process in terms of um, their career uh, progressions and um, their objectives in life and where they want to be and sort of kind of steering them through um, their career prospects. Now, reverse mentoring, what that means is that still happens. However, the mentee also becomes a mentor for that clinical leader. 
And so the same process essentially happens, but in reverse. What that's enabled individuals to do is get the senior leaders to look at their lives through their their lens that they're providing them with. And it has had such profound consequences on how we've developed our Black, Asian and minority ethnic networks here. And so from that singular act that's happening at a local level, it's now really, we're really starting to see the benefits of what it's reaped. And I'm really excited about how we we move forward with this. I think that's, for me, it's, it's just been phenomenal. Thank you, Margaret. I'm really fascinated by that concept of allyship, but never been able to tease out what it looks like in practice. So you've explained that really well. And you know, practical idea and reverse mentorship that people can take away. I suppose it's just, you know, in the same way that you don't fully know what an A&E doctor does until you follow them around for a bit, but you can make all sorts of judgments and assumptions. It's walking in each other's shoes, isn't it? Absolutely. So I've kind of gone off down a real tangent, but I was so fascinated by you talking about your mum and what you've experienced and that feeling of belonging. I want to come back to your leadership journey. It sounds like your mum was an incredible role model for you, an activist, someone who, I mean, if she was a broadcaster in that era, she was clearly putting herself out there already. I'm interested to know when you first felt like you were a leader. So uh, I think one of my earliest memories, there's two points I think I can draw on. One was when I was at a college conference a few years ago. It was the last one, I think, before the lockdown. And someone came up to me and she tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh my gosh, it's you. And I thought, oh my God, I I was in the back of my mind, I was thinking, right, I don't know who this is. I don't know her name. (laughs) Well, where did I meet her? And I just thought, how am I going to tell her that? I'm sorry, I don't remember who she is. I said, yeah, it's me. (laughs) I said, I'm really sorry, I don't know who you are. And so she said, oh, no, I read an article in a a GP magazine and you had to feature on embracing change in there. And I was like, really? But that was on the back page. (laughs) And so um, we sat and talked for a while and we exchanged numbers. And I'm still in touch with her today, which was really good. But then I thought to myself, oh, goodness, wow, okay, yeah, I know I'm chair, but even as chair, I hadn't considered that as a leadership role, but clearly that had some impact on what she was doing. And then last year in March, April time, we had a situation at our practice where a number of our trainees were feeling quite upset about what they perceived to be the disproportionate face-to-face consultations they were having with patients compared to partners. And um, they came to me. And I said, well, at the time, we didn't have an RCA in place, a recorded consultation assessment. I said, well, you are expected to do the CSA. And so clearly we can't drop off the face-to-face consultations because you'll need those. So here I was defending the practice position until one of them said, yeah, but we're more likely to die. And then I thought, oh, okay, I can't argue with that. And so we held a urgent meeting and then what we did was we equalized the number of telephones and face-to-face across every single clinician and we started doing the risk assessments before they even became official as such and it was at that point I realized is this problem particular to just us and I did a survey and I really wasn't 
ready for the volume of responses I got back. We think we got about 250 odd responses back from trainees detailing their experiences on wards and their redeployment to certain areas where they had no PPE. And so I forwarded all that information to Kevin Fenton and his team at Public Health. And I think looking at how swiftly things changed, at that point I realised goodness they had someone to go to that was me and without sounding arrogant but I was able in the position that I was in call it leadership call it what, what, it, what you like but I was able to effect change and make a difference there's one thing someone coming up to you and recognizing you for who you are and what you've written or said but it was just another thing realizing that actually I may need to utilize the position better than I was doing at the time So rather than just chairing meetings quarterly, which was my role as chair and still is, actually, what are you doing with it? And I think that's when it really hit me, right, okay. Uh, Not that I wasn't serious before, but I I need to really buckle down now and and look at how I can really try and use my voice, my power to influence change, particularly through the lens of equality, diversity and inclusion. I really like that, Margaret, because I don't know, somebody once said, you know, they realised they were a leader when they turned around and someone was following them. And that's what happened to you at the conference. But then you didn't stop there because it's not about the recognition. It's not about the title ever. It's not about just chairing meetings. It's I'm now in that position. What can I do with that to help people who are coming up behind me? And that resonates a lot with me. I'm interested to know, how did you, you know, so you be- you became faculty chair, but people might be thinking, how does one go about getting to that stage how did it happen so I'll just step back a little bit yes I, I I was when I saw the role for educational lead pop up a few years prior to taking on the role of faculty chair I remember seeing the advert and thinking at that point in time I think my kids were just kind of sort of of an age where I felt that I, I was ready to just do something else outside of my practice roles And I was very keen on um, education and how it's delivered in a way that makes it meaningful for people on the shop floor. And when I say on the shop floor, jobbing GPs. And a lot of the CPD that was coming through wasn't really, I mean, there was stuff that I think was, was really relevant and the stuff that you'll always need to see and remind yourself and refresh yourself with regards to clinical conditions. So for example, you know, the recognition of certain skin lesions or ENT and, you know, stuff, barn door stuff that will always remain there. But there was other things that were happening that I felt we could have reflected better in terms of our CPD delivery. So at the time, if I remember FGM, for example, you know, how are we dealing with that in practices or our transgender health? actually, how do you actually have consultations with people from specific communities? Because these were the sort of things that weren't really part of the postgraduate curriculum. So I thought, right, I think I could do this. I'll just apply. So I applied. I I ended up getting the role, which, and it was a really good role. And it, it really made me understand the college a little bit better. And so for people who used to say, oh, what does it offer me? It became quite apparent what the college does for its membership and then I think after a few years because it was really the travel because it was I always believe because a lot of the stuff they said you could do remotely and I really do strongly believe there is some you know obviously in the last year we haven't had much of a choice doing things remotely however you still can't 
there's nothing that replaces that human connect when you're in a room with somebody. Um, but and that's what became taxing, really, was the travel, because Hull to Warrington would take a whole day out of your week. So I gave that role up and I said, but I really still enjoy coming to my local faculty. I will continue doing it. Turned up to an AGM one day and I was asked by uh, the regional leaders to consider the chair. And I said, I remember my first words were, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that that's for you know and because my compass was typically we've had kind of senior white men in that space and I've only just been in you know little old me in educational lead what, what do I know about chairing a, a faculty board and I remember saying to our regional engagement manager then why me and she responded well why not you and then I just went, all oh, right then. <laughs> I love that. Why not? Why not you? Do so you use how, that still now when you're? I do actually. Yeah. So I, and that's one of the tips I give to people who are considering certain positions and roles. And you know, if not you, then then who? I think last year, after the the whole George Floyd incident, I remember the national roles came up, and someone has suggested to me, oh, you know, I think you should go um, for a national role on council. And I remember saying exactly the same thing. You think I've learned from the first time. I went, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> and I said, but you know what? I know a real couple of people that would be really useful and good on council. And I'm quite happy to propose or nominate them. And I did. And then I got several phone calls from individuals saying, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? I said, they said, we appreciate the people that you've nominated and proposed. We, we also feel that they belong in that space but we often fall into that trap niche, don't we, where just because there's one individual of colour in a particular role, you know, organisations and individuals actually think, well, they've already got someone there, but there's no, there's no room for another. And that's just so wrong. That mindset, we, you know, I personally need to come away with. And I had fallen into that trap because I thought, well, there's two or three people that have nominated themselves. And I think if we're all behind them, that'd be really good. And so... Um, after several discussions with several people, I said, all right, okay, fine. Let me do this. I'll do this. And so that's what made me put myself forward for a national council rep role as well. And congratulations on getting it, Margaret. I'm oh, so no, glad that you. you did. It's so important as well. That is nice to, because it makes me think about sometimes you've got to tap other people on the shoulder and say, why are you not going for that? I've had that happen to me. I've done it to other people. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. We're all here to help and support each other and that's what you need it's just a nudge to say hey what about you that's what we we all need I mean some of us need a slightly bigger nudge than, than others but... <laughs> a shove up the backside and sponsorship as well because I know I talked about reverse mentoring but I also think sponsorship is is just so so important so not that kind of I'm not talking about financial sponsorship but just when you've got specific individuals that you feel could live in certain spaces and work in certain spaces it's about being their sponsor and saying do you know what I think so and so would be really good for this role and you know and whenever they do anything exciting or when they impact change actually celebrating it as well so that people are aware and I think that's what as women that's one of the things that I really feel we don't do enough we don't celebrate our achievements as well as and I don't want to 
sound awful, but we don't celebrate our achievements as well as men do. Um, I remember a, a couple of years ago, she was a first five train, well, she first five GP, really, really good. And the partnership offer came up and someone else in that partnership got the partnership, the partnership. And she said, um, I really don't know why I didn't get it, you know. And I said, well, Dr. X, I know since he started that role, you know, every other day was when I'm a partner, when I'm a partner, when I'm, it was almost like a self affirmation. So when it came up, I'm, I knew a few people on that management board that he was almost like the natural candidate because he, he, he'd always highlighted his achievements to people. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, because I mean, that is what ambition does, but waiting for people to recognize what we're doing sometimes is something that we fall into the trap of doing because it's almost that difficulty of if we if we advertise it too much where do we draw the line with being sort of boastful mm. you know it just feels like self-promotion though it, feels it does so yeah uncomfortable. absolutely and that's why sponsorship is important because someone's promoting yourself and if we can identify those individuals who we feel could be in certain spaces there's nothing wrong with us doing that with them to help them because it's there's no there's no law to say only one of us niche belongs in a certain space because of who we are it could be two could be three could be four could be more yeah I, I like that we've talked about sponsorship and allyship and mentorship they're all slightly different but they all have a role to play yeah. and when you've been in these roles Margaret I mean if you ever feel a bit out of your depth or a bit like an imposter what helps in those moments? Um, I think, for me, what helps me more is remembering what my inner why is. So almost hitting the reset button. Why have I decided to do this? And then, the, you know, with some particular roles, I even go back and read the job description. It's that bad. I'll just say, just to remind myself, I am worthy. I belong here you know, going back to that five-year-old self, there is no reason why I should feel that I don't belong in this space. I, I do. And it's just channeling that inner reflection to keep reminding ourselves that's why we're here. It is a real thing. I think I even read somewhere that they're considering it to um, imposter syndrome to be classified on the um, international classification for diseases because it's so widespread. Um, but it's just being mindful that it's there and it's recognising it when it's there. I'm, I'm, I'm much better at recognising it now than I was before and actually just flicking it away off my shoulder and saying, right, go away. <laughs> I, am, I belong here. And how many children do you have? I have two. So I have Jeremy, who's a 15-year-old avid rugby player, and uh, Sophia, who is 13. And we just call her mini-me because she's just... <laughs> she's just a little version of me she's oh. just interesting but they're so lucky to have you as a role model do oh, you well. do you try and impart this to them that feeling of belonging yeah we do we do and it's very difficult because I realize that their journeys they're coming from a privileged space so they haven't had to deal with a single parent or deal with a school that doesn't believe in their career aspirations or goals and so actually, I often wonder about what their motivation in life will be, because mine was, you know, growing up is you're a young black woman in a very white space with people who who don't 
expect you to amount to anything. In fact, I remember coming out of secondary school, the aspiration for most girls from that convent was to have a baby and get a council flat. It really was. And I remember saying to our year group at the end of the year, we need to make sure that we, we become somebody and not just the expectation of the teachers that have taught us because some of it was just awful. Hmm. And how do you find juggling being a mum and all the roles that you're doing? And you, you mentioned you waited till your children were a bit older. Was that deliberate before you started diversifying your roles? It was, yeah, because I'm very conscious that they will have their own challenges, despite the fact that they are, and I would say very loosely, privileged to some degree. And I, growing up, that's probably one thing I missed out on in my childhood, that because my parents were essentially hustling a space that was not being fair to them, that there were certain things that they felt that, well, our kids are sensible enough to crack on with this on their own. So we did. So, you know, I didn't have that. And there's nothing against them whatsoever. It's not that I'm bitter. It's just how it was. We just were expected just to sort of as soon as we were able to sort of not fend for ourselves, that sounds really harsh and it sounds like we were abandoned. We weren't. But it was just every every day was a bit of a hustle, really. So that's why I've made the conscious effort to say, right, okay, I need to be invested in their growth. And that means if that means I have to sacrifice a bit of what I do, then so be it, because they are my proudest achievement. I love that because there are lots of people listening who are probably quite young like me and thinking it's great to hear these inspiring stories but I'm not there yet but I like the way you sort of give permission that that's okay to take that time you don't have to gallop at everything in your 20s and 30s absolutely absolutely my final question before we go on to the final three Margaret I'm very conscious of your time no it's all right it's fine I'm enjoying this I'm enjoying it too and I've sort of gone completely <laughs> off script so it's partly my fault sorry <laughs> Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what the future holds. Maybe if we have this conversation in five or ten years' time, what do you think you'll be telling me about? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I think I'm hoping that in five or years, five years' time, we'll be talking about your pathway to the great leader that you've already become and how you've channeled that energy to help others niche because oh, I think what you're doing I know I've turned it around to you on purpose because <laughs> I think what you've done is just so inspirational because some people particularly as trainees they get caught in a kind of bubble which I know is understandable because it's only three years for for some but all they can see in front of them are the competencies that they need to deal with their portfolio and the kind of they just get caught in this kind of hamster wheel but having that opportunity to try and do other things and I don't think the curriculum allows for exploration of the other if that makes sense and I'm really keen that people learn to create their own paths in life essentially that yes there are some mandatory things you have to do to gain your CCT your certificate of completion of training but actually why not just stray from the past sometimes if you want to do something different or innovative you can so I'm hoping that in a few years time we'll have more trainees that do stuff like you're doing which is just inspirational to know that actually these things can be done and it can be done regardless of who you are um it's just about making you know having that vision and just saying you know what 
I think this can be done. And often you will be told, well, I'm not sure you can do this, Margaret, because it's never been done before and we don't know how you're going to do it, you know, and that's not a reason not to do something and try. How many businesses or ideas fail before they become successful? And so I think sometimes we've become quite risk averse in what we do in terms of our personal development. I've given you quite a wishy-washy answer there, but yeah. And I'm hoping that in five years' time we'll see, a, I think, an increasing move to a more diverse representation of leaders, regardless of which space they're in, whether that's the college, Health Education England, NHS England. I think, and it's great that we've got leaders there already, don't get me wrong, but we can still name them, can't we? Mm. It'd be nice to have, when people tell me, oh, you know, well, we've got Nikki Kanani. I'm like, yeah, she's lovely. And I'll say, who else can you name? And they'll be like, oh, okay. So it'd be nice to have others join her in that space. And you're so right. When I was thinking about ethnic diversity for this podcast and asking for suggestions, it was the same handful of names that keep coming up to everyone I'm asking. And it felt insufficient. I, I really felt that. But thank you for your kind words as well. I would just add that it, thinking about what you said about sponsorship, the reason I've had the courage to step out of training to explore other avenues has always been because somebody has not tapped me on the shoulder because it's never been enough, but literally shoved me up the backside and said, you need to do this. And I can name lots of people who have done that for me. And I genuinely know I would have not done any of this without those people. That's 100%. Wonderful. Margaret, I've loved chatting to you and hearing your story. I just the final three questions, if that's okay, that we ask everyone that comes on the podcast. And the first is, can you tell me about a book or a podcast that you would recommend people to listen to? Yeah, so I, I think there's so many good books out there. Um, and I think one of the ones I would have to mention is the one by one of my and I'm, I'm almost mindful to call him a mentor, Amar Rugani, and he's written a book called The Leadership Hike with Joanne Bircher. And it's a really engaging book, and it's a practical book um, with regards to why leadership matters in primary care. And sometimes when someone asks me about the best book that I've ever read, it's always the book that I'm currently reading <laughs> for some <laughs> yeah. reason. And the book's called The Advantage, Why okay. Organisational Health trumps everything in business and it's written by a gentleman called Patrick Lencioni and I'm halfway through it and it's one of those books you just think right okay I'm gonna have to read this again because there's just too much good stuff in it around how to and, and this does focus on strategy um, more so than um, Amar's book but like you were saying before sometimes we need to step out of an NHS arena to look at how organizations function and actually if your organization's not healthy it's not going to thrive and some of it is just commonsensical stuff in there about building team cohesion and what we can do as leaders in that space thanks margaret i love your recommendations and patrick lencioni has written have you read five dysfunctions of a team so that's my Very next good. book because yes i've started and, with yeah and he's also <laughs> written death by meeting Oh, right. which okay. I love those two okay. are really I haven't read this one though so I'll put that on my list thank okay. you okay. But those two I really recommend right. in return thank you and you've also given me two recommendations before which I will mention one of them I haven't got round to yet but I I loved Abby Wombach's book Wolfpack and How Women Rise yes that was another one you said yeah How Women Rise it was I think Sally Helgson it's a really that book 
I have to buy another copy because I've given up my own copy <laughs> and I've bought several copies for other leaders and every single woman's come back to me and said, oh my goodness, this book. Again, it's, there's nothing groundbreaking in it, but it's the stuff that you think, actually, why why am I doing this? Why do I always have to start a sentence with, you know, oh, I'm sorry, this is a silly question as a woman. I don't think I've ever heard a man apologise for doing that. So that's another that's another really good book. I think I need to read that. I'm very much, you know, an email. Sorry to bother you. Sorry to ask. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Well, I just cannot write an email without yeah. those phrases. Yeah, yeah. And so the final question, Margaret, I mean, this whole podcast has been full of advice and lessons and I've loved it. But if you could distill your your top three pieces of advice for young new leaders listening to this, what would they be? Oh, top three. So I've got first one I thought could be to know your team, but not just know them, allow them to know you. Because it's one thing knowing them, but unless you, you know, the the term that Brene coined, this power of vulnerability is so important because that just helps build trust and relationship. So when things are suggested or proposed, you're trying to work as a team, you get more buy-in from them because they know it's coming from a good place. So that would be the first thing, know your team. I think the second one would be, again, probably related to the first is be genuine because if you're not people will will lose faith in you, won't they, really, as, as a leader? And you can see that happening on a national level if genuine um, individuals don't perhaps follow through or admit when they get things wrong. You kind of work towards a breakdown in trust, and so that's really not a good place to start. So be genuine. And the third is, is what I call the keep moving strategy. And by that, I mean... I don't know if you drive, Nish, but if you've ever been at a roundabout and you arrive the same time two or three other people arrive. So I've coined this term called roundabout paralysis, where you just, you're stuck there and everyone's looking at each other like, right, who's going to move? And what I suggest people do, obviously not on a road, but in terms of your professional life, don't get stuck at that roundabout. Don't wait for someone else to make the move because you're too scared of the consequences of moving. So just keep moving, whether it's in your personal life, your organisation, your networks, you be the one that moves. That's such a great note to end on. So know your team, be genuine and keep moving. And I, I'm thinking back to where we started with your mum and I bet that's what she was doing and reaching out to be a broadcaster. She just kept going. She just kept going. Yeah. Absolutely. Margaret, I have I've loved speaking to you. I, we don't really know each other very well. We've never met in real life, but I feel like I know you already. And that's um, just because you've been so warm and so open and shared so much wisdom from your, your leadership journey, from growing up, from your advice. So thank yeah, you. No problem. It's been really good. So that was episode 22 with Dr. Margaret Ikpo. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I think what will stay with me the most is just hearing how she started off being told, frankly, that she just didn't belong and how over time she somehow found herself moving to a place where she says, you know, if not me, then who? And also the importance of practical things like mentorship, reverse mentorship, allyship, sponsorship, thinking about who's not in this room that needs to be, that I think we can all take away. 
So that's it for another week. If you'd like to keep in touch as ever, sign up to our monthly bulletin. The link is in the show notes. And we'll see you next time for the next Gencast.